Hello and thank you for listening to this Youth Mental Health Podcast with the Northern Trust. My name is James Nelson. I'm a psychiatrist in the Trust and I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleague Carmel Milne. Carmel, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, um, my name is Carmel Millen. I currently practice as a CAMS eating disorder practitioner within the Northern Trust. And you're very humbly not mentioning it. You're the team lead for that team, but uh, uh, there, there we go. And, and, and the title of our podcast today, Carmel, is Eating Disorders, an Introduction for Parents and Carers. Um, and, and maybe just to start off, Carmel, it, it probably helps just maybe getting our definitions right so people know what we're talking about as, as they listen to this. And, and I guess we're aiming this particularly at parents or carers of a young person who may have an eating problem or, or an eating disorder. When we use the term eating disorder, what exactly do we mean? What are we referring to? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. So when we talk about anorexia nervosa, we're talking about someone who is actively trying to lose weight or has already lost quite a lot of weight. Um, we're talking about them actively trying to restrict their intake. Someone who thinks a lot about their weight and their shape um, and they really overvaluate what their weight and their shape means about them and about how they live their life. Um, there could be a real intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat and there can be a persistent behaviour that interferes with weight gain such as um, you know, driven exercise. So they might work really, really hard at exercise. They might really try to avoid at all costs um, anything that's going to influence their weight or their shape or how they think about that at that present moment in time. Someone with bulimia nervosa may be um, of similar mindset, may be deliberately trying to restrict, but may also do so in ways that is compensating how much they, they restrict their intake or how much intake they have. So they may eat what they perceive to be high volumes of food um, and then self-induce vomiting. So we might call that in clinic purging, but really that's just you know somebody who makes themselves sick. Um, they may also take some tablets um, to try and influence their weight and their shape as well. Really what we're trying to get across here is how, how fixated and how preoccupied the young person with an eating disorder may be compared to any other young person who is starting to think about their weight and their shape in normal teenage context. Um, somebody with an eating disorder here, when we talk about preoccupation, preoccupation is something that the young person will think about day in, day out, could dream about every aspect of their life every decision that they make has to do with their weight and their shape okay lots in there carmel yeah so you've been pointing out some key features there about people getting a, a disordered view of what their shape is a real focus on their weight and their shape and when you say intake of course you're talking about the amount of food they're 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 taking in their food intake um and then other behaviors around it such as over exercising and, and making themselves sick and, and you're emphasizing there that this is a really big issue not not something sort of small and by uh, and by the side if you like just just on that last point Carmel there's maybe someone listening to this and they're trying to work out for a, a loved one relative maybe does my uh, relative have an eating disorder or is this just a bit of a teenage phase they're going through so they're maybe getting a bit picky with food they're maybe wanting to drop a a clothing size or something how how could we guide someone listening almost where do you draw a line between the almost ordinary concern about shape and eating versus really what requires the expertise of a team like yours what what's a, what's a real problem 
Okay, so when we think of um, an eating disorder, we'll think of an eating disorder versus an eating difficulty. So eating difficulties we may see when a young person is... Okay, we've got two different strands to eating difficulties as well, if you might think about it. We have someone approaching their teenage years who may be really starting to notice their weight and their shape, may really be starting to notice that other friends, their peers are growing taller or changing um, and they're not keeping up or they've went perhaps faster than the other. Um, and again, I want to just comment on the difference between boys and girls here. So girls, we do see both with boys and girls with eating disorders in our clinic. And I think it's really, really important to note um, there is a misconception that girls will develop eating disorders. Boys will develop them too. What we tend to see is boys presenting a little bit later. Um, and they've went under the radar a little bit because they tend to want to bulk up and get more muscles and follow protein-based um, diets that may people may think oh, it's a fad diet at the start and that may come under the eating difficulty it may not actually be an eating disorder um it may be a mild over evaluation of weight and shape um we may also have an organic side to that as well where someone may have um poor appetite because of anxiety or because of a mood disorder or sensory issues where they're really really particularly picky about smells or tastes or, or textures of foods that they like to eat. Now, if we think about an eating disorder, we're thinking about two totally different things. So an eating disorder, I just want to explain two different strands that we work with with eating disorders. We've got our physical eating disorder and we've got our cognitive eating disorder, cognitive side to eating disorder, shall I say. So when we meet a young person, um, yes, we're presented with a lot of physical traits. We're presented with low weight. We're presented with what they're doing to actively lose weight and make sure that that follows through. Um, however, when we actually go through a timeline with them, the cognition about why they want to lose weight, how they feel about themselves, how they over-evaluate themselves, does tend to come a lot longer than when they first deliberately started putting measures in place. So... An eating disorder, we are looking at a real cognitive backup about why they want to deliberately restrict. We are looking at a real, real over-evaluation of weight and shape. We are looking at weight loss and low weight at the same time, but not always really low weight. I mean, we will have some young people here really cognitively unwell um, with how much they are thinking about this. And that comes back to the word preoccupation that I used earlier on. So... I wanted to focus on preoccupation. So the difference, this is, in my view, day in, day out, this is how I sometimes determine what is an eating disorder versus an eating difficulty. I measure what is the preoccupation that this person has. So when I think of preoccupation, I think of how much is this young person thinking about this day in, day out? Are they dreaming about it? Is every decision that they make based on over-evaluation of weight and shape? Quite often we will have the answer, yes, yes, yes. So you may have someone who have, um, I'm just going to give the example of being athletic, someone who has always been athletic and has always managed to um, achieve really, really high, highly in athletic fields, be it football, be it hockey, be it camogie, be it whatever. And that person may also be able to achieve really, really highly in their school studies with A stars as well. So when this becomes different, is um, you may have someone who goes out to training three, four nights a week. On that fourth night, a year ago, and I'm purposely saying a year ago, which I'll explain later on, 
When that person went out to training a year ago, say, and that fourth night was cancelled because of poor weather, because the coach was ill or because of whatever, it was like, oh, well, we'll stop. We'll get a pizza on the way home or oh, that'll give me time to go into my studies or that'll give me time to go and see my friend. When that's different is when you start to see distress an increase in anxiety or an alternative plan. So they'll go home and they'll make up their own plan instead because the thought of not getting that fourth or fifth night of exercise is really, really going to impact on how they live the rest of their day or their week. Um, and that's going back to me saying a preoccupation is really overthinking everything that that young person may do. And purpose, I'm just going to go back to my reference to a year ago. The reason that I say that is because young people that we see and families that we see that accompany these young people, when we use examples of this or when we're trying to ask about examples of this, we tend to hear, but they've always been like this, they've always done this. Back to my earlier reference about the cognition that tends to come, you know, longer, a much longer time before we start to see a young person changing their behaviour. That's that's a really good question for that we ask parents to ask. Three years ago, was this the case? Three years ago, did they always not like bananas? Or three years ago, did they eat bananas? Three years ago, would they have really, really got annoyed if they missed that third or fourth night of exercise? If the answer is no, this actually has changed in the last two or three years, or the last year, or the last six months, then we could be looking at something that is preoccupation or um, compensatory behaviour or a really, really what we refer to as driven um, notion of exercise. There's a lot in there, Carmel, uh, a lot indeed. Um, and I think you're referring us back then to those earlier comments about definitions, about needing to see the range of things like maybe it's weight loss and disordered view of one's own weight and so on. Uh, and I think that that quite helpful distinction between there's the physical aspect and when you say the cognition aspect, of course, that means the thought aspect, um, those two parts of it, and also has th- have things changed for the, for, for the person. I think that's helpful for our listeners to to just hear a bit more about that. And then if we just zone in a bit, Carmel, in the young person themselves. So let's take the example of a young person who's developed anorexia nervosa. Um, can you give us some key things of what this might actually look like? So you've mentioned some already. So maybe someone that exercise, they really want to, they've got to get it and they're focused and obsessed on it. So that's maybe one thing, but are there a few other things, uh, and you mentioned about certain food types that maybe they they now won't eat, but they used to. C- can you give us a few more actual real life examples in a young person with anorexia? What might it, what what might be happening? Yeah, it, it, it does, I suppose, present as a real inflexible way of thinking. So that, that thought really, it, it's really, really difficult to dilute that thought and really difficult to have that thought become flexible in any way. Now, when I say thought, I'm talking not just about the thought, I'm talking about what that looks like in real life terms. That's what I'm trying to do here as well. So you might have a young person who's developed um, a real routine or a real rigid rule about how they eat. Um, of course, the young person's not going to come to you and say, I've got this rule about how I eat. These are really, really subtle things that, that happen, but you may find a young person wanting to sit at the same spot at the dinner table um, or not sit at the same spot during the dinner table, not maybe perhaps not wanting to sit at the dinner table at all or wanting to use the same spoon or the same knife and fork or the same bowl. Um, and of course, we, we can assume, you know, until we've met that young person, we can assume why those reasons are. Sometimes that's about portion control. Sometimes that's about being in charge of exactly what way your food looks. 
um, we might see that young person develop a real rule or rigidity around how they cut up their food, about what order they start to eat their foods and fluids as well. And of course, maybe develop a real interest in baking and becoming involved in the grocery shopping and you know thinking the whole family needs to be on a health kick and, and taking control of what foods come into the family home. Of course that looks like really helpful behaviour at the start. When you think happy days, my young person's really interested, they've really got their helpful hands on and they're helping me out with cooking and they've the dinner prepared and sorted out before I even come home from work. But really what we want to look out for is can that person be flexible about doing that? So what happens if that child has a meal or a menu in mind or a recipe that they've found from somewhere? What happens when you step in and you say, uh, not tonight, I've changed my mind. I'm actually going to go for the family favourite spaghetti bolognese, which actually we haven't had in about a month. And I've only just realised that we haven't had it in so long. And assess what way does that child react to that? Do you start to see some anxiety? Do you start to see the child going, okay, no problem? Or do you see them going, okay, well, I've got a really healthy recipe for that. And then within that, before that or after that meal takes place, are you starting to notice concentration changing? Are you starting to notice mood changing? Um, are you starting to notice irritability? And that, and that can come in in many shapes and forms, I suppose, depending on what is normal for your child. And it's really, really important to remember that this is a really subtle thing that takes place over time. Um, and the age-old question that we get from most parents that come in is, is this a teenage thing or is this something else? Because it could be a teenage thing. It could be developing hormones that could be starting to express yourself in many different ways but really when we try and put all these different pieces of the jigsaw together we may actually be looking at you know the psychological effects of an eating disorder i think that's really interesting carmel and and i'm i'm struck by a few things that you're saying there one of them was the bit about helping with food because as you say it, it can present as someone quite interested and cooking and preparing and I think I know that sometimes almost that can be used as a bit of a camouflage a bit of a they're maybe giving themselves a smaller portion but nobody quite notices or they're making sure it's all healthy ingredients and a parent or carer might almost be um, making the wrong assumption that oh they're interested in food that's good and that's nice and that's healthy but but underneath it all there's this very strong obsession with food and with, with weight and with the amount of calories and things, for, for example. So I'm struck by that, what you're saying. And also your use of the word subtle. I think that seems to me really important because I think I'm right in saying, Karma, would you agree that maybe quite often this could be quite hidden, that, that young people in the throes of an eating disorder might become extremely skilled at keeping this uh, as far as possible out of everyone's sight. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, this is gradual over time among families. So we have got, like I was talking about, we have got our different strands about the way that the young person may think. And then again, about what they might do is really, really subtle over time. So we might, you know, to the point where it becomes totally normalized, either as part of that child's personality or part of family routine. So if a young person is going out to their sports clubs three times a week as typical, and that is quite typical for a lot of young people that we see, if that becomes a fourth time or a fifth time, who drives them to the fourth time and who drives them to the fifth time? That's typically the parents. So it becomes as much of the parents' routine as it does actually for the child's. And over time in a busy household where these things are happening, it does become normalized. And it's difficult to distinguish over time when it is so subtle. When did this become 
more than normal when did this become on the other end of extreme and again those those little tips that I've mentioned can help you distinguish that so if you're planning to go out and you get a flat tire if you're planning to go out and you decide actually auntie so-and-so is going to come around you know instead or actually it's a bit too wet what's the reaction it's a reaction that we're looking at here is that reaction would that have been normal for that child when they were four and plans would have changed or is that reaction changed in the last and I will say a couple of months or I will say a couple of years What's really, really important to note, James, like you've been saying, is that these behaviours aren't personable to that child. Yes, they're personable in the context of be it hockey, be it swimming, be it whatever that interest is. But we know that eating disorder is illness based because we could go to, and this is really well evidence based, we could go to South Africa, we could go to Australia, and we will see similar accommodations made within families we will see similar behaviours about what people, what young people do, what adults do as well, that tell us. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. So I had a parent on one, one occasion who worked, lovely family who was really welcoming of service. Um, child had a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa, had real rigid routines in place, had developed a real keen interest in baking, um, would bake loads and maybe three nights a week and love to offer that out to family and friends and teachers. Um, never edit herself, really, really enjoyed the smell. But, you know, used to say, well, I cook so often, you know, I can't possibly eat every time I cook. This is a hobby for me. And this parent came along to our parents' support group one night and the other parents were sitting chatting. And I was beside this new parent who I had. And all the other parents were sitting, taking turns, talking about their own child. She leaned over to me and she said, um, Carmel, how does everyone here, why are they all talking about my daughter? Did they, have you told them about my daughter? And I said, absolutely not. They're talking about their own. And she was shocked. She could not believe that there was other parents or other children out there talking about what seemed to be their own children's hobbies. What seemed to be their own children's day-to-day routines. But actually, it's in the context of an illness actually it's in the context of obsession and actually that's in the context of preoccupation over evaluation of weight and shape and that young people young people all these young people purposely doing things in response to how their thoughts were working yeah again a whole variety of things in there you're 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 sharing with us carmel i'm thinking about that gradual change of family routines that family might not even notice that it almost needs someone to step back and go hold on a minute actually our whole family life has changed around some of this um i'm just still thinking about the the sports and the three or four times a week because obviously for some people that's entirely healthy and normal someone might be at a high level of sport and they do that and we're not saying that means they've got an eating disorder but rather that if that's in the context of lots of other obsessions about eating drive to lose weight or vomiting behaviors or whatever that's where a a parent maybe needs to be more concerned and and just back to the word subtlety um i'm just thinking a little bit about exercise because i i'm thinking of one or two families i've met and the level of exercise that a young person might do uh, can be staggering and, and it might have gone on for quite a while and, and nobody knew about it like multiple hundreds of push-ups or sit-ups a day or sneaking out at night to go and run you know 10 15 yeah. miles or something you know all the time i'm guessing that would be fairly common in your day-to-day work that the level of exercise can be be huge as well would that be right carmel 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's what we would refer to as driven exercise. And typically that is what we see in a young person with anorexia nervosa who will come into our service. We will see driven exercise. Um, the examples I was given, I suppose I was referring to the subtle impact of it over time. Um, and that even that driven exercise can still present a subtle. You can still have someone who's offering to clean the whole house from top to bottom, who's offering to do all the ironing, who is even sitting in the classroom at school, for example, and micro-exercising by reaching forward, stretching back, putting their books inside their bag, pulling their books back outside of their bag, twisting around to get their book, their books, um, taking different positions, even just within their chair. I mean, that is micro-exercising, but if that seems to go on all the time, or foot tapping or hand tapping, if that's a continuous thing, um, that can absolutely be categorised as, as a driven exercise as well. But again, we do have young people who are um, unfortunately engaging in really driven exercise, which is really, really intense and, and really, really difficult for the young people. And in the moment, we may have young people who are insisting that this is really, really what they want to do. And actually, when they come to see us and we put a ban in place or we put, um, you know, ask to put the child in bed rest or uh, later on, we get an admission that actually that was a big relief. Now, that will take some time to get to that admission. Um, typically what we're we're faced with in that moment is quite a lot of resistance quite a lot of negotiation quite a lot of arguments and that's where we I'll come into this again later on but that's where we take it upon ourselves our team we will do this in the first instance and we will ask parents to take this on as well where we will set that boundary for that child because we can assume that that child is beyond being able to make that decision for themselves that will we'll deliver it sort of like as a permission slip to stop and we'll we'll call it a permission slip to stop exercising or if we're suggesting a meal plan we'll call that like a permission slip to eat and we're really quite firm about that 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 we make that decision or that parents make that decision because if the young person is faced with that and i want to just make this this little point if a young person is faced with that in the throes of you know being really cognitively unwell or or hearing loads of thoughts all the time about why they should do this um you should lose weight you're too fat other people don't care for you the way that i care for you um and that little bit there i should say um, young people describe like a voice or a thought that's like externalized with an eating disorder so that when we talk about the permission slip i'm just making that point that we will be quite firm that we or parents will make the choice because if we are asking the young person to make a choice, what we're actually doing is asking that young person to take responsibility for either stopping to exercise or for making a choice about what they're going to eat. And with that responsibility comes a lot of guilt for young people. And with that guilt becomes a lot of anxiety and a lot of distress, which can be far too much for a young person to handle if they are quite unwell, particularly at the early stages of treatment. Yeah, just... Uh, just to reflect a bit there, Carmel. Again, there's 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 loads in there. So that bit about the the admission from the young person in future, they look back and say that was a relief, isn't 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 that? But you're saying that they've, but at the time, they maybe were as cross as could be with their parents, or as cross as they could be with the eating disorder team or whatever. But later on, they can see that there was some re- relief with it. And then another thing you were, you were saying there, Carmel, just about the maybe the lack of ability for a young person in the throes of this to control it that's probably worth us emphasizing so a parent or a carer might expect a young person to think rationally 
and say, look, you're really thin and this is really unhealthy for you and you're starting to get dizzy or, or whatever and might expect the young person to join the dots and go, yes, you're right, mom, or yes, you're right, auntie. But I think we're saying here, Carmel, in the throes of it, a young person maybe can't think straight about this and and it's helpful then maybe for a, a parent or carer to be aware of that. Is that fair enough as well? No, that's a really important, um, a really, really important point, James, that I should have mentioned at the start. So again, if we think of our two different strands, we've got how somebody physically is presenting and we've got how somebody is thinking. So from a physical perspective, if someone has lost quite some amount of weight, they may be physically compromised. And of course, we're relying on the brain to be quite logical. And if a brain has become starved or um, is in a state of malnutrition, that's really just not going to be possible. A young person or, or an adult with an eating disorder will simply just not be able to make sense or logic um, or join the dots as you're describing. And I think that's really important to notice. That's not about taking away agency or, or choice or, or trying to disrespect your child or young person at all. It's about just being realistic and being fair with them that actually it's probably quite... Un- if, if you were working with someone who was really... like. If you had a daughter or a son who was really, really, really tired, you wouldn't expect them to come up with really rational things or if they were really, really, really unwell with the cold or the flu or if they were in hospital for an operation, you wouldn't be expecting them to be really rational and logical. You would say, you know, sit you down here, you need your time to recover um, and you wouldn't be putting big decisions on them. Um, And I think that's the context that we have to think of, that if we have a young person who may still be achieving their A stars in school, which is really, really common, our young people will still be high achievers. They will be working extremely hard, but their brain may still be in a state of malnutrition and may not be able to make those rational decisions or choices for themselves. Um, The other thing I just really want to say is when we talk about these cognitions, we're talking about thoughts, okay? And young people who come to us who describe these thoughts, it is their thoughts, but they do describe them as really overpowering thoughts. Overpowering in the sense that they feel they can't control these thoughts, that these thoughts are not fleeting. They're not, they're not thoughts that come and go. They're there all the time. They're really, really disrespectful. They're really self-loathing. Um, they are absolutely in charge and they, they really ramp it up so if we were to tell a young person you know we might see on the face we might see anxiety but really what that young person might be listening to is um, a real barrage of, of thoughts going around in their head about really nasty things about them or nasty things about their caregivers such as we, we will encourage young people to externalize this then and, and give this give these thoughts a, a whole different identity. Give the so name this thought the most ugliest name you could possibly think of. Um, be it whatever. We have we have Ed, we have Agnes, we have all sorts of, of eating disorder names going around. And we say, what is Agnes saying to you now? And we will hear Agnes is saying that you're wrong, that I'm really unhealthy, that if I ever want to achieve in life, I need to restrict my intake. Um, I need to work really hard, that I'm really incredibly lazy. Um, and, and I'm being quite polite in, in what I'm reporting here. A lot of young people will, will say a lot 
about more nasty things than that. And just maybe for clarification for folk, we're, we're not thinking of this in the way of voice hearing, in the way that some might have a psychotic, serious mental illness where they hear someone literally talking when there isn't someone there. And that's thankfully unusual in, in, in young people. But it's, as you said at the start, it's thoughts, very prominent thoughts, overpowering thoughts when they're in the grip of an eating disorder. So, so just in case people were, were wanting some clarity about, about that, but that it can be so overwhelming to a young person. Is, is that a fair sort of summary of it, Carmel? No, that's perfect summary, yeah. And we've mentioned about families a little bit here and there. And I wonder, do you want to say a little bit more about the impact that all of this can have on a family because I think it's fair to say it's really significant. Yeah, I do. I mean, this this is referred to as a family illness. Um, you know, in evidence based research or you know, in many webinars or um, in many support groups, this is referred to as a family based because um, it does affect every single person in that family. So. I've talked about routines, I've talked about rituals there, um, and they do become part of a normal family routine. So I'm talking about, um, I, I was using the example of sports, so I don't want to run with that completely because we do have other young people who are not into sports at all. Um, but, you know, they, they, they can be often described as the perfect child or the child they never had to worry about. And now all of a sudden they're having to worry, worry about. Um, but we do have young people or families, whole families who have, and again, I'm using that word subtly, but subtly accommodated for a lot of changes. Um, so we could be talking about different meals, different meal choices, packing lunches in certain ways. It can be real, not impossible, but it can be really, really difficult for families to be spontaneous. So um, to go out in family drives, to pull into a cafe or a diner, um, even to have nice family celebrations like, oh, we're going to get a takeaway on Saturday night because, well, because we don't feel like cooking or we're going to have a takeaway on Saturday night just because it was somebody's birthday. You may see suggestions of, you know, birthday buns coming in because it may be a smaller portion of cake instead of having to have a cake. You may find a young person wanting to avoid outings altogether. And again, that's where the age old question of is this a teenage thing or is this, you know, something that I should be worried about might come into play. Um, but families can get quite, I suppose, if you're already starting to think, I think this is a problem for my young person, you may start to be getting afraid of well, what if I say the wrong thing or what if I upset them? Um, that young person's fear can be so intense, but so can the parents. And that anger can be so intense in the young person, but so can the parents. And that comes from a place of possibly frustration, not necessarily aggression per se, but, but the families that we meet tend to have been managing this for quite some time. Um, and they tend to be really tired and they tend to have argued and worried for quite some time. And of course, you know, rather than battle this all the time, parents and families might find that they've stopped going out to family functions that they've stopped visiting people, that they've stopped being spontaneous about letting people come into their homes. And that can be really, really difficult. These are difficulties that have happened, but when we think about food, I don't think that people really realise how much of our daily lives are revolving around food. I mean, we typically will ask young people to eat six times a day, but normal teenagers can graze umpteen times a day. You know, they could graze a lot more than that. Um, when I say six times a day, I'm thinking in the fashion of breakfast, 
then a normal break time at school, then a lunch, then a, a snack when they come home from school, and then a dinner, and then a normal supper. That would be totally normal. Um, so if you're thinking about a parent who's quite worried about intake, that's a lot of times a day to be worried and to be possibly arguing or negotiating with family or with your young person. I think it's so interesting that you said that because I was just thinking the same thing that so much of daily life and family life can revolve around food. It's like, oh, let, what do we have for dinner or here, what do you want for supper or whatever? And um, if that gets then, if that becomes almost a battle zone or a war zone, especially when it gets confronted, then I suppose isn't that where we can see that actually this is really hard for families because those normal gatherings of probably positive experiences a lot of the time have turned into tense, boundaried, we're watching what you're eating kind of thing. And and, and then that gets hard for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, in our culture as well, we tend to celebrate with food. We bring a cake, we bring some treats. If it's a hard day, we'll bring some buns. Um, if it's if they've just graduated we'll go out for dinner and it's it's everything that we do and like you say James something that should be celebrated and we should bring a smile on our face sometimes we'll just bring intense fear and worry and oh no how are they going to react to this um, and an avoidance and you know it can make the whole family withdraw from yeah. each other and from other what would be normal support networks. Um, and I think it's just really important that we highlight here that these are accommodations, yes, and they're subtle over time, but that's exactly what they are, they're subtle. And I just want to make that point really, really clear that there's no evidence base being looked at here for what causes an eating disorder. And that's usually the number one question that we have from parents. What did I do? What went wrong? I'm, I'm so guilty. We do have young have parents who will feel incredibly guilty when they come to see us, but please rest assured that is not that is not something that we're looking at. Um, we are not looking at what you have done or what you have not done. What we will do is try and work with you around the guilt around that because, again, we know this is an illness. It's not just happening in your home; it's happening in many homes and it's happening globally. And we will need to work on that guilt actually because that guilt may have an impact then on how firm you can be in following plans through with getting your own person to eat at home. And I think it's probably worth emphasizing that um, it is really, really hard for parents that they've probably been through the mill uh, and, and it's been extremely tough. And yeah, even just mentioning that on this podcast, that it is a really difficult season for a family to be going through. In, in terms of practical tips, Carmel, um, so if someone's listening to this going, yes, you're describing my child. Obviously, we can't go into great detail because that could take us multiple podcast episodes. But in terms of just some key points, are there any practical suggestions we can give to a parent or a carer around this? Well, well the first thing I would like to say is if you think that you're recognising something that we're talking about within your own child or niece or nephew or grandchild, please think about going to the GP first and accessing a service. So... Again, we've got two strands. We have got physical compromise here and that can't be ignored. And you need to access support with your GP and undergo some medical examinations there. But you will also really benefit from therapeutic intervention as well. And we can do that all in tandem. The first thing that I do want to say is 
how positive it can be to actually externalize the illness or externalize the thought. So like I've said, young people will be, and families will be presenting now as possibly burnt out, possibly haven't have had arguments about this, possibly haven't made accommodations and negotiations about this for quite some time before you've realized, okay, is this a problem or this is a problem? So it can be really, really useful to actually sit down and start to define what is my child and what is possibly an illness or a problem or a difficulty here. And you can do that by just writing, really simply write it down, two lists, talk to somebody who is your support network. Your child is still your child, okay? The positives about your child is still there. It is quite possible that the positives within your child or the positives about your child has been overshadowed slightly by this illness and whatever arguments or negotiations or stress comes with that as well of course but your child is still your child so it's really important that you sit down first of all and have a conversation perhaps with your child or perhaps not with your child about what what has changed over the past couple of years is the anxiety or the aggression or the stress in context to something else? Does it always happen around shopping time? Does it always happen um, at night time? And start to try and put patterns into place. With of course, no, you're not trying, no one's asking you to be the therapist here. What we're just asking you to do is just externalize what these thoughts can be and try to separate that a little bit from, you know, the positivity that we would have known your child to have been. The other thing that, uh, that's the first, that's where I would start. When you're waiting, I suppose, for an intervention, I suppose just be quite mindful that when we talk about that thought that young people have, those thoughts, um, we do need to think about them as a separate, okay? So when you're having negotiations or when you're having arguments, you can be mindful. I don't think this is my child that I'm responding to here. I think this is something else. When you think it's something else or when you've identified it's something else, just pause pause and walk away because there's no negotiation that can be had with that thought. That thought is so intense, it's probably quite well embedded and like I've said before, it will be completely irrational. So you can't, number one, you can't treat anxiety with anxiety and number two, you can't be rational with something that has absolutely no ability to be rational. So walk away from that. Um, what we would try to say is put a a brief plan in place. So have just think thoughts around who your support network's gonna be around meal times, grocery shopping, etc. Um, a top tip would just be to not have your young person involved in, in grocery shopping. If you feel that you just can't do that on your own at this stage, just try and put boundaries in place. So you can be involved in um, choosing lunch times, but you can't be involved in choosing dinner times, something like that until you've accessed services. Try and have a think as well about two years ago, would that have been my norm? Two years ago, would they have ate that or argued with me about that? I'm going back to the, the, the guilt theme that we were talking about there, James. We may have parents who just think, look, I, I just can't, don't feel like I can put those boundaries in place. I feel like I'm really going to upset them. I don't feel like I can talk to my child anymore. I'm, um, I'm afraid that they're going to take what I say in the wrong way. So... If, if you're voicing concern with a young person, if you're voicing concern with a young person and you feel like your child's not really hearing that, 
um, just stop voicing concern with them because it likely is that they're not hearing that. We will say to a parent, try not to comment on appearance at all. So don't comment on you look awful, you look unhealthy, you look thin because that's you're going to be triggering a thought there that's just irrational. You can comment on happiness. Comment on you look stressed today. You look happier today than you did last night. Last night you were sad. Were you sad? Why were you sad? And see if you can spark a conversation in that way. That would be your top tips for, for now. Our number one top tip though would be to go and access services so that you're not doing this on your own. Yeah, that's really helpful. Lots of uh, useful stuff in there, Carmel. And um, just that bit about accessing services and that's just the GP that families go to have a conversation and and see if that needs an onward referral. Isn't that right? Yes. Your first point of call would be your GP and your GP would refer on yeah. to services. Okay, great. That's, that's helpful. And, and I have just one sort of thing to follow up on there about, um, as we were saying there, you know, a young person, maybe you can't negotiate with them on some of this. If it's, if it's irrational and they're in the throes of an eating disorder, a parent might be listening to that and thinking, does that mean I can't really do firm boundaries? I think, you've kind of already answered my question but I think we're saying boundaries are needed but but the debate and the argument kind of won't work so but it's still appropriate to say look uh here's what's going to happen around meal times and uh, am I getting you right Carmel we can still have boundaries around all of this 100 percent. so what, what I mean by that is set your boundaries with somebody else like a support network you have be it your partner mm-hmm. be it your mum be it your dad whoever set those boundaries and then deliver those boundaries don't negotiate with those boundaries with your young person once you have them set, you have them set. So the boundaries around meal times, the boundaries around what they can or can't do. Yeah. Um, we've covered a lot, Carmel, and yet we're only scratching the surface, I know. But uh, if someone's listening to this and they want to read more or they want some good resources to sort of get into this more, are there any, any things in particular you'd want to point people towards? There's, there's, yeah, there's a charity based, um, a charity called Beat, B-E-A-T, and it has a really good website with some really, really useful resources for young people with eating disorders, adults with eating disorders, carers, parents or professionals working with eating disorders. And I would really urge anybody to have a look at that if they were worried. Um, if at this stage you now think, no, this is something my child, I am going to go to the GP or I'm already waiting on service. Um, another good book that I would recommend is one by Janet Treasure and it's called Skills-Based Caring for a Loved One with an Eating Disorder um, and it's a blue cover with a little dolphin on the on the front page and it's quite good it has quite practical tips about how, what to do how to manage conversations and negotiations as well okay great and we'll, we'll put a little link uh, for, for those resources in the text of the podcast so if someone wants to find those more easily that'll be a way they can tap on that link to, to find them Carmel we've covered a lot uh, you've shared a lot of thoughts and, and, and helpful suggestions with us thanks uh, very much for, for, for joining us today thank you also to you our listeners we'll embed in the text of the podcast a short survey uh, feel free to just tap on that to, to give us a little bit of feedback or any ideas you'd like us to cover in future uh, podcasts and we hope that you find today's podcast helpful <laughs>